Well, I'd like to first begin by thanking everyone for uh, coming today. Um, it's the little bit of a treacherous drive getting up our road. Um, for some of us that walked, it's also probably not the most uh, sure-footed walk in this kind of condition. So thank you all for coming here today. Um, the gift of your practice is something that it's, it's really it's one of the most profound offerings that we can give. Um, we wouldn't be here, and Owen wouldn't be here as this practice center without uh, our combined efforts in our practice. So a deep bow to all of you for that. So we're in the midst of our ongo period, uh, which is an, a period of uh, deep in practice um, that has some historical context going back to the monks and the monsoon season when people would kind of hunker down and really um, do a lot of intensification of the practice. And this year at Oan, we've chosen to discuss the five hindrances. Um, and today's talk is going to focus around the hindrance of desire. Actually, I'd like to begin with a brief story um, uh, this is titled The Fortunate Fish, and this is a Jataka story, uh, which were a series of stories that supposedly uh, talk about an element of the Buddha's life before his birth, and each story has something that some lesson to be learned in it. Um, this particular one was translated by Kurunigodo Pietasa. Once upon a time, King Brahmadatta had a very wise advisor who understood the speech of animals. He understood what they said, and he could speak to them in their languages. One day the advisor was wandering down the river bank with his followers. They came upon some fishermen who had caught a, cast a big net into the river. While peering into the water, they noticed a big handsome fish who was following his pretty wife. Her shining scales reflected the morning sunlight and all the colors of the rainbow. Her feather-like fins fluttered like the delicate wings of a fairy as they sent her gliding through the water. It was clear that her husband was so entranced by the way she looked and the way she moved that he was not paying attention to anything else. As they came near the net, the white fish smelled it. She saw and alertly avoided it at the very last moment. But her husband was so blinded by his desire for her that he could not turn away fast enough. Instead, he swam right into the net and was trapped. The fishermen pulled in their net and threw the big fish onto the shore. They built a fire, carved a spit, and began preparing to roast the fish. Lying on the ground, the fish was flopping around and groaning in agony. Since the wise advisor understood fish talk, he translated for the others. He said, this poor fish is madly repeating over and over again, my wife, my wife, I must be with my wife. I care for her much more than for my life. My wife, my wife, I must be with my wife. I care for her much more than my life. The advisor thought, truly, this fish has gone crazy. He is in this terrible state because he has become a slave to his own desire and it is clear that he has learned nothing from the result of his actions. If he dies keeping, such, keeping in such agony, uh, the desire that caused it, in his mind he will surely continue to suffer by being reborn in some hell world. Therefore, I must save him. So this kind man went over to the fisherman and said, O oh, my friends, loyal subjects of our king, you have never given me and my followers a fish for our curry. Won't you give us one today? They replied, O oh, royal minister, please accept from us any fish that you wish. This big one over on the riverbank looks particularly delicious, said the advisor. Please take him, sir, they said. Then he sat down on the bank and he took the fish, who was still groaning into his hands. He spoke to him in the language only fish can understand, saying, You foolish fish! If I had not seen you today, you would have gotten yourself killed. Your blind desire was leading you to continued suffering. From now on, do not let yourself be trapped by your own desires. Then the fish realized how fortunate he was to have found such a friend. He thanked his friend for his wise advice, 
and the minister released the lucky fish back into the river, and he went about his way. Quite a lucky fish that day, I suppose. Um, in thinking about the, the hindrances, uh, one particular definition that I like, that I believe I've shared before, is that hindrances can really be described as something that takes us out of the present moment. And particularly looking at desire, um, the, the Pali word for it is kamachandra, uh, which roughly translates as sensual desire. And when we say sensual desire, I think it conjures up an image of some you know, romance novel cover with a, a shirtless Fabio, hair fluttering in the wind, <laughs> His muscular chest exposed, and, and, and that's the kind of image we go to. Um, and while that's certainly included in that, in that description, um, it's, it's much more than that. It's often defined as looking at our five senses and kind of taking each one of them and, and taking it to an obsessive level. It could be that if I have a desire to see a beautiful, scenic uh, vista over a mountaintop, that I have got nothing else in my mind but that, on my way up the mountain, I may miss a thousand other beautiful views because I'm so single-mindedly locked into that. I could be trying to smell the incense and not paying attention to my meditation because I just love the way that our friend of pine incense smells, that I don't notice other things. Uh, one of my big desires, which I'm in a perpetual state of desire about, is macaroni and cheese. I love macaroni <laughs> and cheese. One of my favorite things in the world. Um, and I'll often think about the next time that I can <laughs> indulge in my, my guilty pleasure of macaroni and cheese. Um, and the, the, one of the, the largest ones also that I tend to see is it's not really in the five standard senses but in, in our thoughts uh, that's where desire really gets to me it's said that the Buddha has described uh, the sense of desire as, as like taking out a loan that when we indulge in that what we end up doing is we're, we're borrowing against the future and that we're going to have to pay that loan back um, and it's also reported that the Buddha said that the interest on such a loan is a very heavy thing to pay indeed it's easy to look at desire as being these big things. It's, it's lusting after someone that you're, that you're in love with or just that you're in lust with. Or it's, it's really craving that delicious bowl of macaroni and cheese or, or whatever it may be. Um, but I think there's also a much more subtle side of that as well. It's just craving this over that. Um, today, I was um, in quite a bit of pain while meditating. Yesterday, I had been hauling a lot of wood around the property and it's led to some sore arms and shoulders in the back. And every time I tried to sit in a, in a very upright, good posture, like a, a good doshi should, I just I couldn't quite do it. And I'd feel this kind of shaking in my back, and I'd have to kind of slouch back over. And I took great strength from, from looking at all, all of you sitting like Buddhas today. And, and that really helped. Uh, it was, really, it was a, quite a gift to me. Um, but even that, that desire to, to sit very stoically in an upright fashion without moving a muscle, um, it, was, it was a desire. And... It's really easy to have little things like that, just those little fidgets on the cushion that we give into, and then, okay, well, maybe if I move my leg like this, it'll be easier. And we can just keep going and going and going, and suddenly I've wasted my entire half hour. I haven't really been paying attention to my meditation. Desire isn't necessarily in and of itself a bad thing, per se. Um, we're biological creatures. If we didn't have a desire to procreate, we would have died off long ago. If we didn't have a desire for safety and for comfort, we might not eat as often as we should and nourish our bodies. We might not have built homes to shelter ourselves from the weather. Um, so desire isn't inherently a bad thing. It's when we, really, when we give it full reign to occupy our mind in its entirety, where we, we focus on nothing else, that's when desire truly becomes a hindrance to us and, and fully removes us from the present moment. 
Um, I think one of the challenging things about for me with desire as well is that we have so many different desires. They're constantly pulling us in so many different directions. It's easy to kind of let them get crossed together and, and we, we mix them up and it becomes something bigger um, than it really needs to be. I think it's pretty common that a lot of us have a desire for more money. Um, and I think a lot of us also have a desire to be happy or to not be unhappy. And I think that's a great example where it's really easy to let those things get crossed and say, okay, well, if I had more money, I wouldn't be unhappy. I'd be happy all the time, um, which is, is often not the case. But we let those desires get crossed together like that, and it, and it can really be a challenging thing for us to deal with. This morning, we chanted the Loving Kindness Sutra, which is uh, one of my favorite sutras. And there's a line in there that's always given me a little bit of pause. And it's, and let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Um, that, always, that always kind of has a problem for me, because I feel like it's, it's a generous thing. It's a good thing to, to truly wish well on those around me. And that if I want to have my family and those I love have these great things, well, that's what a great person I am. That's a wonderful thing. I want them to be happy. I want them to have the things that they don't have. Um, and again, it's really easy to let that let desire for wishing well for your family, to let that get taken too far and to really go to an extreme level where what where you're doing is creating suffering at that point. It's, not, it's no longer a happy and helpful thing that you're trying to do. It's, it's, it's putting a burden of that on your family. And this is one that actually um, it, it sticks pretty close to home for me right now. Um, in the last couple of weeks, I had had a kind of a family emergency um, where there were some you know, family members that were in a great deal of suffering. And um, home for me is 500 miles away back in Michigan. And I, I, I felt this, this burning desire that I, just, I had to do something. I had to find a way to help. I had to find a way to, to, to help my family. Um, and uh, in myself, that often manifests, manifests as this you know, John Wayne kicking down the door, going guns blazing, get right in there, and I'm going to help. I'm going to get right in there, and I'm going to do it. Um, my sister, who is one of my uh, one of my favorite people on this planet, we're very very close, has the opposite side of that, where she's very restrained and gentle and waiting for just that right moment uh, to get in and try and help with things. And as we were talking about this, we saw that really it was both of our desires. Neither one of them was the best thing to do. Um, unsurprisingly, the the middle way and you know using a little bit of both of our philosophies was really ended up what what ended up helping a lot in that situation. Um, but again, I think that's an example where that desire to to help can be such a powerful thing, and it can be blinding to all else. Um, I think it was particularly tough for me because being so far removed from the situation, it felt I felt powerless in that I just if I just want to help hard enough, well. I'll fix it. That's all you need to do. Just want it really bad. Um, and of course, that's, that wasn't the situation. And, and had I done that, I probably would have caused much more harm um, than even the initial situation really had presented itself with. And in that situation, I was just like the fish. I was, I was so blinded my, by, by my desire that I didn't see that, that net that was closing in and really could have made the situation much, much worse. But um, fortunately, I have a very wonderful sister, and we were able to kind of counteract each other and balance each other out a little bit. And I think it's important, especially when, we're, when we get in the grip of desire, to try and look for that net. Um, it's a hard thing to do because generally once we're in that, in that moment and we have that fiery grip of, of desire and of passion or whatever it may be, 
that we don't see those things. We get very we get very laser focused with our vision. We can only see what that object of our desire is. And it's important to try and take a step back when we're able to look for what, you know, what dangers might be lurking out there that if we pursue something with such a single-minded determination to the to the point of being obsessive, um, that it can really it can really cause some significant harm. As I was preparing for this Dharma talk today, I was doing a lot of research about the historical context of desire and what it means for Zen and desire. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of writing um, on the subject of how to how to deal with desire. Um, there's kind of a, a Soto Zen perspective, which is very just watch desire arise and let it pass. Um, which I think can be a really helpful thing for a lot of people, but that's not always the easiest thing either. Um, there are some other perspectives that talk about when you feel desire arising, look at it really deeply to look at the opposite of something. If it's you know lustful thoughts about one that someone may be having, to think about you know maybe an imperfection or a flaw, or to um, think about the idea of impermanence. It's said that again in, in one talk when Buddha was discussing desire that he had conjured up an image of this beautiful woman that everyone was entranced with, but then he had the image grow old and get sick and die in front of everyone's eyes to teach them that this is the nature of impermanence and that desire is a fleeting thing. With things like food, uh, which is another very common desire for me, it can be helpful to think about the, the negative aspects of it. Maybe this isn't the most healthy thing. Maybe you know, eating a box of horribly processed Kraft macaroni and cheese, while delicious, is not the most healthy thing I could be putting in my body. Um, another common form that desire takes for, for many people um, is with addiction, whether it be cigarettes, other types of uh, drugs, medications, um, and that's another thing that, that some of the reading out there will talk about, you know, really looking at the, the negative effects of these things. And again, while those things may be helpful as well, I think it's important to take a measured approach, that there's not going to be any one best way to deal with desire. Um, desire is a very situational thing. It really depends on what are the causes and uh, conditions of that exact moment that are causing those feelings or thoughts to arise and to, to reflect inward and think about what the best way to handle that is. And it may be just to say, this is simply a desire, and to let it rise and fall and it may be to look at it very deeply and to engage, engage with it to see how, what may be best done. Uh, for those of you that have ever really had a conversation with me, much less heard a Dharma talk from me, you know that I like to talk in analogies a lot. So as I was trying to think of a really good way to communicate um, my thoughts about desire and, and what it means to me, I was um, kind of came up with this little scenario. So I'll ask you to indulge me for a moment. Think of a world where small little flames will pop up constantly. These flames don't do any harm. They won't burn anything down. They just pop up, they burn for a little bit, and they fade away. However, when we give these flames our attention, which is different than just looking at them, we can look at something without giving it much attention. Uh, when we give them our, our attention, we feed these flames. And at first, it's just a little bit of paper sprinkled on that flame, and it gets a little bigger. And then we look at it a little bit more deeply, and now we're putting some sticks and some kindling on, and it really starts to smolder, and it becomes a bigger fire. Um, as, we, as we continue down this path, we're putting large logs, and eventually we're throwing whole trees on this flame, and it's, it's a raging inferno. And I think that's really very similar to what happens with our desire. I think that it's easy to have that little, that thought that pops up of desire, which happens to us all constantly. We're biological creatures, and that's 
it's going to continue to happen. There's no real, um, I don't think there's any elimination of desire that we're going to run into. But what we do is instead of just looking at it and observing and saying, okay, there it is. There's a, this is a desire for whatever it may be. Instead of just looking at it, we tend to feed it. And we really, we really focus on it to the point where it does become our entire world and it gets out of control. I know another way that, that I, I can think about the difference between looking at something and giving something my attention is uh, when I look at these, these soji screens, these rice screens around the Zendo, um, many of us have sat in front of these things for hours. And I often will just look at them as I'm sitting and don't really think much of them. And it's just kind of a blank canvas that you know, reflects myself. Uh, but there are times when I really give them my attention and I concoct these elaborate scenes and I see cats and dogs or a slice of pizza or these, whatever, whatever it is that I may be thinking about. And it, it's, it's right there. I mean, it's, it's very real. Um, there's a pattern in the floor over here that I always see when I'm walking. It looks like a half of a man's face to me and I've named it. It's old man Flory. And I always think of it every time I walk past. Um, it, it, it's so real. And it's one of those things that it's by, by really giving attention to those things and not just looking at them that I've really fed into that. And that particular manifestation is one of, you know, a desire to not be in the present moment, not be sitting on this cushion. Maybe I'm bored and my legs are stiff and I just can't quite do it today. So I start to kind of daydream and I'm like, well, there's, if I look like this, it's kind of a cat with a really big left ear. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that that's something that we all do. Um, as I'm facing the window, I'll often look at, you know, a squirrel that's, you know, running around atop the snow. And I come up with these, again, elaborate stories about where it's going and what it's doing and, you know, what it's trying to get away from or head to. Um, and before I know it, like I said, I've, you know, 25 minutes have gone by that I've been completely off in my own little world. So one of the things that I'd kind of like to, to leave us with today as we're um, you know, preparing to head out soon here to walk in the snow is to really look for those situations where we have that small little flame and we start to feed it um, and try and take a step back. One of, my, uh, one of my biggest hobbies is to um, go backpacking. It's something Juzan and I have been doing together for uh, many years. And uh, for me, one of, the, one of the really great things about that is that the end of a long day's hike, we'll, you know, we'll spend some time and we'll gather some wood and we'll gather some kindling and we'll get it all ready and we'll make ourselves a nice little fire. Um, and that's, that's a really wonderful thing to me. It's this very cathartic, great way to close out the day. And it's, you know, the warmth of a fire when you're hiking. It's just there's something about that, that that's always been very special to me. And when I do that, it's not to say that every time we make a fire, we make a raging inferno. Um, it's possible to have to make a reasonable fire. And again, I think that's, that's similar to with desire. It's not that desire is bad. It's not that it's wrong to uh, want something that can be a very helpful thing. But it's to make sure that we have... We're trying to keep that in check and that it's not, you know, becoming this raging inferno of desire about whatever the object of that desire may be, but that it's, it's a reasonable thing. Um, you don't need a firestorm to roast a marshmallow. Sometimes some nice embers and a nice small fire are exactly what you need.